0: Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiatives Podcast. I'm Oliver Hartwig. I'm today joined by three of our colleagues here at the initiative, Dr. Bryce Wilkinson, Dr. Michael Johnson and Dr. Eric Crampton. Hello. Good afternoon.
1: Good afternoon. Hi, we bro.
0: want to talk about the bonfire of policies announced by the new Prime Minister, Chris Hipkins. The government announced they're going to ditch some policies, pause some policies and continue with some policies. And we just want to make sense of them all. First of all, quick reaction from all three of you. Did it make sense? Was it the great bonfire of policies you'd hoped for?
1: It was a step along the way, but it's not the end of the job. There are other policies which are going to cause great difficulty and trouble for both this government and the next government they're pursued.
2: And Michael? Yes, I agree with Bryce. I think all of the policies that have been thrown on the bonfire should have been, but there are other things. Most notably, the big elephant in the room, as yet un- unaddressed, is Three Waters and what they might want to do with that. But I do think we have to give Chris Hipkins some, some credit and we'll come to some of the policies that he probably didn't have to do away with but did because it was the rational thing to do. So, yeah. And Eric, happy?
3: Uh, happier than i was before christmas but it was obvious that they're going to have to do some paring down i'd had a column months ago saying well is it is it better to do a thousand things really really badly or to do a couple of things maybe less badly so they, they had zero capacity to enact their entire legislative agenda they were going to have to pair some things they got rid of or delayed some of the worst of them but there are still lots of bad things coming through
0: okay Maybe we start with the positives then. I think one of the most positive announcements was the end of biofuels, or actually the end of biofuel mandates. Eric, if you could just briefly explain what is a biofuel, what is a biofuel mandate, and why doesn't that mandate make sense?
3: Sure. A biofuel is one where instead of taking hydrocarbons out of the ground, you grow stuff, turn it into hydrocarbons, and then run it through an engine. Now,
0: So basically, you produce artificial petrol. yeah, uh, yeah. And that sort,
3: of, that kind of tech has been around for a while. It's always been fairly high cost. The ca- tech keeps developing. And what did the government want to do with that? Well, they wanted to mandate biofuels into the fuel supply, so there'd be a requirement that fuels must contain at least a proportion of biofuels. Is that a bit like the E ninety one fuel you can buy in Australia? Well, and you can buy. I, I think BP has an ethanol blend here as mm-hmm. well, but a mandate on it's something entirely different. And especially when we remember that the emissions trading scheme has a binding cap if a biofuel has fewer emissions than it would because you sequester some carbon when you grow the stuff before you burn it, then we've already got plenty of incentive in the system to adopt biofuels when they make sense. And if you mandate it, by kind of by definition, either you're doing nothing or you're requiring the tech to come in before it's ready when it's still
0: not cost-effective. So getting rid of it would probably make fuels cheaper. Cheaper than they otherwise would have been. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't affect our overall
3: emissions because... Because if we had been doing biofuels, then fewer emissions credits would have been bought by the petrol companies and more emission credits would have been bought by everybody else.
0: So for that particular policy, bonfire, 10 out of 10? Absolutely. Great. Perfect. So we've got one positive from the bonfire. Michael, I'm looking at you. We've got another one. That's free speech. Oh, yes. Tell us about it. This
2: is very dear to my heart. Of course, last year, the government announced shelving their first go at legislating against hate speech, in which all sorts of groups were going to be protected. And at the time, Chris Farfoy, who was the Justice Minister, and Jacinda Ardern herself were unable to really make clear what those laws were going to mean. Farfoy was famously unable to say whether saying rude things about baby boomers for their monopoly on the housing market or hegemony on the housing market could possibly incur hate speech on the grounds of ageism. Mm-hmm. So that was one thing. That, that but then
0: was gone? Then he was Adrian gone, was and then, gone.
2: then we got Kerry Allen announcing l- later last year that hate speech legislation was back, albeit in a reduced form. At that point, the only thing left on the table was religion. People were not to be able to say hateful things on the basis of religious affiliation or about religions. And, of course... That, in many ways, was the worst thing to leave on the table, because unlike things like race or sex, religious beliefs are mutable. They can change over Mm -hmm. time, and there absolutely ought to be valid debate about them.
0: So So that's gone too
2: So that's gone too, and thank goodness for that, because... I could see a, a huge legal morass. You could end up with people. Essentially, there were going to be new blasphemy
0: laws, potentially. Oh. So full marks from you for the government on that one. Absolutely. But
3: I, I was expecting to have a bit of fun with this because I always write, list economists as my ethnicity on census, and I was planning on listing economist or economics as my religion on the census. And like Radio New Zealand commits blasphemy against economics about six times every ten minutes, right? Yes. And I could have brought them up on
2: hate speech. And now I can't.
0: Well, let's still uh, hope yeah. for you because I think the whole thing is now parked with the Law Commission, right? That's right. So It might come it, back.
2: It might come back. And that, that actually is a general caveat on quite a lot of this bonfire is that, in fact, Hipkins hasn't promised that none of it will ever come back. And that's something that should be borne in mind as we head towards the election. It's one thing to shelve things. but Yeah, but we, we are optimistic we'll here the see initiative, we're, so
0: we'll, let's give it full marks for we'll now. Give it,
2: we'll give it full ni- marks. Well, actually, I'll give it nine out
0: of ten, okay. because he didn't can it completely. Okay. Before we get into the negatives, I'm looking at you, Bryce. You must be happy about the social unemployment insurance scheme gone.
1: Yes, that looked like another nightmare in the offing, so credit to Mr. Hipkins for parking that for now. Um, again, it's
0: parked, it's not entirely gone, but we don't know when we're going to see it again.
1: Yes, that's right. Uh, but presumably we're not going to see it again before the election. So that's a long way,
0: putting a long way in the future. It saves the economy about three and a half billion dollars a year.
1: And administrative costs, that's yeah. worth doing, you would have thought. <laughs> There's only two million households in New Zealand.
0: So, so, that's so let, a, let's, let's give them high marks for that one too. Yes. So we've got three positives already. What are the negatives? What are the things they should have done?
1: Well, the big, the two big ones which are obvious are the Three Waters one, which remains to be seen just what tweaks the Prime Minister's got in mind there.
0: And he has promised some tweaks, right?
1: Yes, that's right. So the pressure's on him, actually. The policy itself makes no sense at all to someone like myself. It doesn't seem to solve any problem. The basic idea is that a lot of money needs to be spent upgrading the infrastructure, but ratepayers can, can't can afford to do it, but somehow taxpayers can, but the taxpayers are the same people as the ratepayers. So you just start with that big question and everything gets worse from there. It's bizarre for the, the minister at the time to say that there's no taking of property rights. You'd think that if anyone understood the taking of property rights, it would be Maori. But here they are, taking away from the ratepayers who've invested in those assets over years, the rights to determine the use from them to get uh, future income from them.
0: And I think there's another policy area which we would have liked to see some action on, and that is resource management. Eric, you just made a submission on Sunday afternoon to the uh, replacement bills uh, for the Resource Management Act. You would have liked to see some action on that one, I presume.
3: Yeah, this one looks like it needs to be a do-over. It is really weird writing that submission because we have been critics of the RMA basically since before I got here, and rightly so. We've been strongly supportive of the government's urban growth agenda, and we know the government sees RM reform as they've built it as part of their urban growth agenda. But man, this thing isn't going to work. It's going to make things worse. It introduces a whole pile of legal uncertainty. It's going to have discretion for judges to decide among 18 objectives that don't have any proper definitions or weightings across them. It isn't going to help. Some things are important enough that you want to just pull the whole
0: thing back and start over. There was at least a bit of a mention that the new local government minister now would be asked to look into this. Is that right? Well, the new local
3: government minister has been asked to look into alternatives around Three Waters. I'm not sure that he's... They'll, they'll be looking back at RM, but like they're already in the select committee process. All of the submitters thus far have raised substantial issues that they'd want to see addressed. And really and, left, right, and center. Well, yeah, so the Environmental Defense Society, they had a pile of issues that they wanted to see addressed, and they thought that it could be done through the select committee process, but it's going to be like 200 pages of changes during a committee process over a few weeks before you get a second reading and then final reading and committee committee the whole. Like, that's not
0: a really constitutionally appropriate way of dealing with matters of this substance. And that was left out completely then of the policy bonfire. Any other measures, anything that caught you? I mean, we, we had the announcement of the minimum wage increase at the same time as the policy bonfire. Any thoughts on that?
1: Well, the, the minimum wage increase is dubious. If under inflation, wages are going to go up anyway, so it makes no sense for the government just to pass a law doing what's going to happen anyway, and then trying to claim the credit for something. If, on the other hand, it's moving wages up faster than productivity growth, then it's putting some people at the margin out of work for the benefit of those who retain their jobs. But from a a social policy point of view, that's pretty awful because the people who are going to lose their jobs are going to be the ones with the the worst employment prospects. They're going to be the most struggling ones. So that sort of policy, if it's having that effect, is actually helping Those who are relatively well off relative to those who are most marginal.
2: And that might especially be so, I suppose, if the uh, measures required to control inflation end up tipping us towards recession, at which point unemployment will will rise and those people will be more vulnerable.
1: Yes, if it is pushing up the minimum wage faster than the market would have put it up anyway, then then it does have an overall. But could it
0: it be that it was just part of a package? So on the one hand, we're getting rid of social unemployment insurance, which is annoying the unions. On the other hand, at least we're giving you an increase in the minimum wage. So kind of to compensate. Yes, that's
1: right. It could be just a political sort of, you know, giving with one hand and taking with another. (laughs) Actually, I was on
0: news talks at B this morning, um, interviewed by Kate Hawksby on Mm. that. And I suggested, I wonder what you make of that? Is This just a political football setting minimum wages. I mean you might be in favour, you might be against, but once you've got them, do you really want politicians setting them, or should we rather have a system like Australia where there's an expert commission, a fair pay commission, setting these minimum wages to take them out of the political arena where they become things to be used in election years?
1: That sort of institutionalises it. If the purpose is just political, maybe it's best just that the politicians a scene seen today taking a, a political oh. mission. What do you think, Derek? Yeah.
3: Okay, first, best. I'm, I'm not really sure that minimum wages mm. are even justified. The market can't take care of this stuff, and it's not like no, nobody would be willing to work for zero dollars. People have to compete to get employees. But given that government will be setting minimum wages... We haven't seen massive overall employment consequences from minimum wages that are on the order of 60% of the median wage. Like I was surprised that it didn't happen at 60%, but like eventually they they keep tracking this up relative to the median. It'll be a problem. If you want to have an automatic ratchet, why not just set that the minimum wage will just be 60% of the median wage rather than have it be this kind of political football. Mm.
2: I suppose one can't gain as much political capital out of announcements about it if you did that.
3: I think I prefer that to having some commission try and set it because that will wind up turning into the Australian-style awards system one way
0: or another. Mm. Okay. Well, since we're talking about labour market regulations, anyway, one of the things absent from the policy bonfire, probably because it's already law, fair pay agreements. They came into force at the end of last year. Probably that's why they couldn't be part of the bonfire.
1: Yes, that's probably right. It's a sort of a done deal that's going to wind its way through now. I think it's a pretty bizarre concept. Firstly, it's they're not agreements. They're things which are forced on parties if, uh, they, if they don't agree. But secondly, there aren't really employer group parties. So mm-hmm. there uh, isn't, uh, isn't a proper negotiating party on, on the employer's side. So that makes it very uncomfortable who, yeah. who's representing yes. who and what's the authority for doing so.
0: And then we've got another part of the bonfire, and that was the cancelled merger of TVNZ and INZ. Nobody that was surprised seemed, by seemed that. It seemed like no one wanted that, so,
2: except well, perhaps William Jackson. Jackson. And interestingly, he retained the portfolio. And I was and just going to y- ask you about who,
0: that. He's still there, but what is he doing
2: now? I don't know. Who can <laughs> say? But he's lost his baby, it would seem. Yeah. That's always a weird one, right? You never understood the point
3: of it. And if anything, it was going to be reducing editorial independence in the way that they stuck the structure. Right now, you can worry a little bit about whether, outfits like RNZ, tend to hire people that think like them, and that represents one form of a Wellington consensus that might not be shared more broadly. But the way that they were going to wind up being more responsible to the minister directly, and with that minister... Mouth and off to Jack Team about
0: what should be allowable in a line of questioning of a minister. Yikes. Well, that policy goes back five years and it's already cost another minister her job. That was Claire Curran at the time. <laughs> <laughs> I and mean, we've probably forgotten that, but she lost her job over that merger talk at a very early stage. Where does this leave the broadcasting minister now? A bit of a lame duck, I would have thought. Is there anything left for the Broadcasting Minister to do?
2: I'd be surprised if we see any great policy shifts in that area before the election, put it that way.
0: Well, there are always
3: like horrible things that you see abroad that you might imagine them picking up, but I'm not going to go through them now unless they give them
0: ideas. Yeah. Okay, so now that we've covered all the major points that were included and not included in the Bonfire, what does all of this tell us about Chris Hipkins? It seems to me that there are
2: two points to make. One is to give him some credit for being a, a good policy thinker, and, and you've made this point, I think, Oliver, in a, in a recent column, that things like the biofuel mandate probably could have got through under the radar pretty much, and yet, as we've reflected here, it didn't make sense. He could obviously see that it didn't make sense, and, and so he included it in the bonfire, and so, so good on him for that.
0: We're probably the only ones giving him credit for that.
2: <laughs> Maybe so. <laughs> but look, the, the the sort of political implications of this are, are interesting to me, and and perhaps the Three Waters in particular, as something that hasn't yet been thrown on the bonfire, but is making noises about reviewing, is the best example of this. I mean, the fact is that he has been part of the government, and a very prominent part of the government, that set up all of these policies in the first place. and. It could be seen as a bit rich for him now to just be turning around, having become prime minister, having seen Labor decline in the polls, to suddenly be jettisoning all these things that he was part of. It looks or could look as, as if it's just responding to, to, to a popularity problem. So I think there are two sides to it. One is he didn't have to get rid of things like biofuel mandates. And so there is some sound policy thinking going on. On the other hand, he seems to me to have a a political problem in that opposition parties can simply say, well, you're just doing this to to look better. Uh,
0: Eric?
3: He had to cut. He's cut some of the more politically dangerous parts. So they've not announced what they're doing in three waters yet, but it seems pretty clear that they're trying to adjust the co-governance aspects, which we're probably underpinning a lot of the political opposition to it. There are a lot of us who take a more principled stance around what the structure should have been, what problems they should have been trying to solve, the incentive issues around that, property rights issues. A lot of the popular opposition has been more around the co-governance side. And if they're pulling that part back, well, that's more political management, it, it would help to solve one of the governance issues that was hitting some of the credit rating agencies and seeing some of the risks in there. Well, this is a, an untried structure and they're going to be highly leveraged. It put riskiness in governance on top of a highly leveraged debt structure, which itself was going to be causing some problems for the crown down the line. So there's a coincidence of good political management and getting rid of an actual real problem potentially in there. Now there's still the underlying problem that there are much simpler solutions to
0: what the government's trying to do in three waters, but not the time and place for that here. So you've said we see a bit more political management, good political management, a bit more policy thinking, and Tipkins always had this reputation as a policy wonk. Price, are you encouraged? I mean, he's been in, in charge now for three weeks as Prime Minister, roughly. Is that an improvement?
1: Yes, yes I'm definitely encouraged. I, I see Labour's policies as far too oriented to benefiting one interest group at the expense of another and not worried about enough about the degree to which they're making people more and more dependent on the state, less able to fend for themselves. And Chris immediately switched the focus from this segmented view of the country to saying he wanted policies to be doing better for the working household. And these measures he's announced, it seemed to me, are all a step back towards better public policy policy and less sort of factional, partisan sort of policy-making.
0: So better policy-making, better political management, this will obviously put more pressure on the opposition. And that's
1: always a good thing.
0: certainly is. (laughs) And what (laughs) do we expect now from the opposition? How would the opposition then respond to that?
2: Well, Luxon can no longer simply lambast Labour for all of these unpopular policies because they're no longer there. So the pressure is on him now to make some announcements of his own about what a national led government would do. And I, I agree with Bryce. That's a very good thing.
3: Yeah, and National already has been pointing out, and you'd expect them to point out, that a lot of these could come back like zombies after the election in a, by, from a Labour-led government. I, I always like looking back to the betting markets on uh, what, what this means for uh, potential election outcomes. When Hipkins first came in, I put a bit of money on Labor at when they were paying off at 3.3 at uh, betfair in Australia. Labor's odds went down to about or increased, so they're only paying about three. They're they're actually back up to about 3.3 again. Pretty thin market, but it's really not had that much movement.
0: It's a bit, a bit surprising. If, if only we had I predict. <laughs> I didn't want to get you started on that one, but anyway, price,
1: Yeah, yeah. The big problems the countries are facing are, you know, in crime, in education, truancy, literacy, in health, lack of capacity, the immigration policy, and infrastructure. These things are very important to the welfare of of New Zealanders. Government's hand is all over them. We need, and housing, I should say, we need government to get these things right. So we don't need all these dangerous and complex and and ill-thought-through initiatives which uh, Hopkins is pulling pulling back from. The country needs these fundamental things to be put right, the things which only government can do, and darn it, it's got to focus on doing them well.
0: So a good, promising start for the Mm. new Prime Minister and probably an exciting start to that election year and we'll see where that leads us in policy development over the coming months. But for now, thank you to Bryce, Michael and Eric, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.